You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. Lots of you have said some really lovely things to me about the latest episodes, and I want to help other people find the show. Here's where you come in. If you love the stories and the history you hear on Enchanted, head over to Apple Podcasts and give Enchanted the History of Magic and Witchcraft a five-star rating. This boosts Enchanted's signal across a variety of podcast apps and makes it just that much more visible to new fans. It's a quick and free way to show your support. And just one more heads up before we get started. This episode acknowledges the existence of sex. Listener discretion is advised. Odin could transform his shape. His body would lie as if dead or asleep. But then he would be in shape of a fish, or worm, or bird, or beast, and be off in a twinkling to distant lands upon his own or other people's business. With words alone he could quench fire, still the ocean in tempest, and turn the wind to any quarter he pleased. Sometimes even, he called the dead out of the earth, or set himself beside the burial mounds whence he was called the Ghost Sovereign and Lord of the Mounds. He had two ravens to whom he had taught the speech of man, and they flew far and wide throughout the land and brought him the news. In all such things he was preeminently wise. He taught all these arts in runes and songs which are called incantations, and therefore the Asland people are called incantation smiths. Odin understood also the art in which the greatest power is lodged, and which he himself practiced, namely, what is called magic. By means of this, he could know beforehand the predestined fate of men, or their not-yet-completed lot, and also bring on the death, ill luck, or bad health of people, and take the strength or wit from one person and give it to another. People sacrificed to Odin and the twelve chiefs from Asaland, and called them their gods, and believed in them long after. With these words, the 13th century Icelandic chronicler Snorri Sturluson describes the origin and practice of Seder, one of many types of magic practiced in Viking Age Scandinavia. While both men and women practiced various kinds of magic, Seder was meant for women alone. So intense was the gendering of this magic that men who performed it found themselves unmanned, rendered effeminate and weak, hopelessly shamed and ostracized from their communities. Despite this, there were men who chose to practice Seder, even knowing the risks. Complicating matters further is the fact that Seder was said to have originated with the Norse god Odin, the Allfather, who had mastered its secrets and passed them on to humankind. In this episode, we explore the ties that bound Scandinavian magic, gender, and sexuality in the Viking Age. Early 
medieval Scandinavians understood magic through the moral code of their culture. Magic could be used for both beneficial and harmful purposes, but it was most useful when preserving family or individual honor. It could be used to foretell the future, to control another's will, to transform a human into the shape of some other creature, to manipulate nature, to protect, and to curse. While both men and women practice magic in Scandinavian literature, accounts of magic performed by women are both more frequent and more detailed. Female magicians were both feared and revered, especially seeresses, oracles who could foresee the future and offer important insight. The advent of Christianity complicated this picture by reinforcing patriarchal structures of power and recasting female magicians as witches. Christian authors also often chose to omit the details of magical practices, leaving historians and literary scholars to piece together how magic was actually performed from multiple kinds of literary, historical, and archaeological evidence. Viking Age Scandinavian culture recognized a variety of magical disciplines. These included types of magic known only to the god Odin, including runic magic and occult spells, Galdr, spells and incantations possibly involving high-pitched singing or chanting, Gandr, use of the primordial void to summon and project spirits, Utiseta, in which practitioners sit in solitude to enter a trance-like state and commune with the spirit world, and Seder. This last is one of the most extensively studied forms. It's also one of the most ambiguous. The word itself means cord or snare, something used for binding. The general consensus among scholars is that the practice itself involved sending out one's mind or spirit to effect some change on another. The cord or string of Seder could refer either to the magical binding of the victim or the tie between the mind and body of the practitioner. Because Seder focuses on manipulation of the spirit world, it's the source of the power of prophecy, and many a saga features a seeress who uses Seder to try to warn other characters against evil. Their attempts are often unsuccessful. After all, where would the drama be if everyone just listened to the voice of reason and kept the peace? So effective was magic as a plot device that many a saga hinged on the deeds of one magic-wielding woman or another. Some altered fate through curses, as in the woman who used Seder in Greta's saga to assure Grettir that he would be, quote, deprived of all favor, all endowments and fortune, all defense and wisdom, the more so, the longer you live. Some used magic to urge their male relatives toward victory or to avenge personal or family honor. Others used it to keep the peace by cooling tempers and appealing to reason. In all cases, magic allowed women to exercise their wills on men in positions of extreme power. Seder, the manipulation of spirit, appears to have been associated mostly with feminine qualities, but, according to Scandinavian lore, Odin, father of the gods, practiced it and taught it to humankind. The 13th century Icelandic chronicler Snorri Sturluson wrote in his Inlinga saga 
Odin understood also the art in which the greatest power is lodged, and which he himself practiced, namely, what is called magic. But after such witchcraft followed such weakness and anxiety that it was not thought respectable for men to practice it, and therefore the priestesses were brought up in this art. While Sather weakened men, it gave the women who wielded it an awe-inspiring aura of power. One Eddic poem describes Asiris as wise in witchcraft. Sather she knew well, with Sather she bewitched minds. Sturluson describes the terrible power of Sather elsewhere in the saga, where he recounts the assassination of a king at the hands of his queen and a powerful witch. Von Lande succeeded his father and ruled over the Upsal domain. He was a great warrior and went far around in different lands. Once he took up his winter abode in Finland with Snae the Old and got his daughter Driva in marriage, but in spring, he set out leaving Driva behind, and although he had promised to return within three years, he did not come back for ten. Then Driva sent a message to the witch Hold and sent Visber, her son by Von Lande, to Sweden. Driva bribed the witch wife Hold, either that she should bewitch Von Lande to return to Finland or kill him. When this witch work was going on, Von Lande was at Uppsal, and a great desire came over him to go to Finland. But his friends and counselors advised him against it, and said the witchcraft of the Finn people showed itself in this desire of his to go there. He then became very drowsy and laid himself down to sleep. But when he had slept but a little, he cried out saying that the Mara was treading upon him. His men hastened to him to help him, but when they took hold of his head, she trod on his legs, and when they laid hold of his legs, she pressed upon his head, and it was death. The Swedes took his body and burnt it at a river called Skita, where a standing stone was raised over him. The Mara in this passage is also called the Mare, as in Nightmare, a malevolent creature that sits on the chests of sleeping men and women. In this case, it's a female spirit, the saga calls her She, sent out by Huld to apply crushing pressure to Van Lande, first to his legs, then, fatally, to his head. Magic not only destroys Van Lande, but also his son and heir, Visber. Visber succeeded his father Van Lande. He married the daughter of Ade the Rich and gave her as her bride gift three large farms and a gold ornament. They had two sons, but Visber left her and took another wife, whereupon she went home to her father with her two sons. Visber had a son who was called Demald, and his stepmother used witchcraft to give him ill luck. Now, when Visber's sons were the one twelve and the other thirteen years of age, they went to their father's place and desired to have their mother's dower, but he would not deliver it to them. Then they said that the gold ornament should be the death of the best man in all his race, and they returned home. Then they began again with enchantments and witchcraft, to try if they could destroy their father. The sorceress Hold said that by witchcraft she could bring it about by this means, that a murderer of his own kin should never be wanting in the Ingling race and they agreed to have it so. Thereafter, they collected men, came unexpectedly in the night on Visber, and burned him in his house. In both cases, Huld's magic allowed the wronged parties to take their revenge on the king and salvage their own honor. First, 
Queen Driva avenged herself on Van Lande, who abandoned her and their son for a decade, urging Hold to make sure Van Lande either returns to the queen he dishonored, or dies. Visper apparently failed to learn the lesson of his father's death, since he too abandoned his first queen and refused to return her property to their children. Visper's sons were then able to avenge their honor through yet another regicide facilitated by Huld's magic. There are multiple lessons to be learned from the use of Seder in Inlinga Saga. The first is that magic is the great equalizer. Even kings are powerless against it. The second is that the first duty of any powerful man, especially a king, must be to uphold his honor and the honor of his queen and their children. Or else. While it may appear that magic was solely the province of women, the reality was not always so clear. Both men and women could practice Galdr and Gandr. Only the practice of Seder seems to have been divided along strict lines of gender. Medievalist Carol Clover has argued, however, that Viking Age Scandinavians understood gender as more than biological sex. Instead, gender expression spanned a spectrum, ranging from Vater, meaning hard, strong, or courageous, to Bloiter meaning soft, weak, or cowardly. The later work of archaeologists and scholars studying burial sites confirms this more complicated idea. Individuals with female skeletal structures and two X chromosomes have been discovered buried in masculine dress, surrounded by traditionally masculine weapons and other objects. Regardless of biological sex, individuals shifted between these categories throughout their lives, depending on age, health, status, and behavior. A bloiter youth might eventually become a vater warrior, but in time, even they would eventually become bloiter again, due to old age and infirmity. This picture is complicated further by a third descriptor, Argur, used to describe someone who's shamed themselves by violating social taboos or otherwise failing to safeguard their personal honor. Someone labeled Argur, the noun is Ergi, suffered social isolation and universal shaming. The shame of Ergi was most commonly associated with men who engaged in homosexual sex, especially the passive or receptive partner, but it could also be applied to men who practiced seder. While women's gender expression could range from bloiter to hvater and encompass a variety of different pursuits and behaviors, including the use of magic, men's social standing was dictated solely by hvater qualities, behavior, and activities. Seder was off-limits. So why was seder so closely associated with women and so dangerous for men? The answer may lie in the sexual aspect of its practice. One of the practitioner's main tools was a staff, held between the legs and wound in the manner of a distaff to wind practitioner's wandering spirits back to their bodies. The names for these magical staffs were often euphemisms for male genitalia, 
and the position in which practitioners held them was suggestive, if not outright erotic. Medieval woodcuts include illustrations of naked female practitioners with staffs between their legs in explicitly sexual positions. For a male practitioner, the homoerotic symbolism would be enough to render him argur in the eyes of his community. When Snorri Sturluson writes, After such witchcraft followed such weakness and anxiety that it was not thought respectable for men to practice it, he means that men who practiced seder risked being identified as argur. The weakness and anxiety that follows seder makes it suitable only for those already associated with weakness, fearfulness, and passivity. However, some scholars of medieval Scandinavian culture, like Neil Price, have argued that some men may have risked being shamed by Ergi precisely because the transgressive nature of this magic rendered it all the more powerful. The very queerness of a male practitioner of Seder meant that he moved beyond gender, beyond social norms, to become something more shocking, more subversive, and all the more terrifying in his power. Today, white nationalist groups in the United States and elsewhere have appropriated the symbols of ancient Scandinavian religion and culture, projecting oversimplified notions of gender, sexuality, and race onto the past. To counteract this, many neo-pagans, modern practitioners of ancient religions, particularly those who gravitate toward the Norse pantheon, have begun to speak out in an attempt to educate the public and rescue Scandinavian religious beliefs and practices from misappropriation and distortion. Scholars specializing in Viking Age Scandinavia are also working together across a variety of disciplines to uncover and teach others about the complexities of gender and sexuality in medieval Scandinavian literature and culture. While it is clear that Scandinavian culture sought to police gender norms, Seder offered an opportunity to subvert those norms. In exploring why any man would risk condemnation in order to learn and practice Seder, Neil Price writes, The answer is that it conferred powers and experiences that could be obtained in no other way. It was imbued with qualities, and perhaps a subversive kind of status, that made it worthwhile even at so steep a price. One thing is clear. Seder offered enormous power to those who could master it. In Inglinga Saga, Snorri Sturluson commemorates the death of Van Lande with a lamenting verse, a testament to the terrifying power of Seder. And Van Lande, in a fatal hour, was dragged by Grimhild's daughter's power, the witchwives, to the dwelling place where men meet Odin face to face. Trampled to death, to Skyta's shore the corpse his faithful followers bore, and there they burnt, with heavy hearts, the good chief killed by witchcraft's arts.
If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and never miss a new episode. This episode was produced by me with the voice talent of Jack Kraus and original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. If you want to learn more about the history of magic in Viking Age Scandinavia, be sure to check out the sources link in the show notes. For more on gender and Seder in particular, see Jacob Bell's essay, Magic, Gender Fluidity, and Queer Vikings, circa 750 to 1050, Johanna Katrin Friedrichsdotter's book, Women in Old Norse Literature, Bodies, Words, and Power, and Neil Price's books, The Viking Way, Magic and Mind in Late Iron Age Scandinavia, and Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings. Special thanks to Enchanted's Patreon patrons for supporting the production of this and every episode. If you want to support Enchanted, please visit patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. While you're at it, why not rate and review Enchanted on Apple Podcasts, which helps new listeners find us. You can get in touch with me via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. As always, to learn more and check out the sources for each episode, visit enchantedpodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening, and stay enchanted. Enchanted.